Well, if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, if you would open to Mark chapter 9, we'll be in verses 30 through 41, Lord willing, this morning. You know, sometimes you encounter a situation or a circumstance that shows you just how prideful you really are. Um, Such was my circumstance just a few minutes ago. Um, If you've been behind the scenes very much when baptisms are done, it is a beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus has done in dying for us, being buried and being raised from the dead. But if you've been behind the scenes very much, you know that um, the pastor often wears waiters. Well, I don't know who did it. I don't know which one of you it was, but when I came back out and took that robe off and took those waiters off, I looked like I was in pre-K again, if you know what I mean. Water had just filled all in the waiters, and, uh, and particularly it had collected on the front of my pants. So immediately I'm thinking, I'm preaching a sermon on pride this morning. What better way to be humbled than to, uh, to go out there looking like I've had an accident. I appreciate Graylin coming in and saying, hey, it happens. You know, that's what he said to me, it, it happens. Graylin, we're glad to know that that happens to you. All right. The other day also, I, I seem to be a magnet for this kind of thing from time to time. These humbling situations. The other day I was uh, sitting in a particular coffee shop that I, um, that I frequent pretty often. I do a lot of studying there. And um, I'm sitting there and this apparently homeless man walks up to me at the table. I'm minding my own business. And uh, he says, hey. I said, hey. He said, uh, do you smoke? Because your teeth are yellow. So I punched him. I'm just kidding. I didn't punch him. I was extremely humiliated. I was humbled instantly. And you say, well, you know, that's not exactly a deadly kind of pride. I mean, everyone kind of understands. No one wants to have yellow teeth, you know. Um, But uh, you may be right. It may not be exactly a deadly instance of pride. But it is illustrative of how many times I gloss over pride in my life. And I make it out to be something less serious than what it is. The Bible is very explicit about what, what pride is. I want, to, I want to give you several verses today before we get to our text. This will feel, for those of you who come on Wednesday nights, this will feel somewhat like a Wednesday night for us this morning. I want to show you what the Bible says about pride. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. Psalm 10, verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In essence, what this verse is saying to us is that pride is an act of vacating the throne of God so that you can seat yourself upon his throne. Pride is constantly saying there is no God. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This points to the fact that pride is destructive to ourselves and to 
other people to the cause of the kingdom of God. That pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. How many times have there, has there been a pastor or worship leader or youth minister who has fallen morally? And the news of it has come out and it seems so sudden and harsh. And for those of us who are part of the Christian faith, I don't know about you, but every time I hear of it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for him, for his family, his wife. But then also it breaks my heart for what the non-Christian community is saying when they see that. When they, when they look at that and they say, well, there goes another one. They're nothing more than hypocrites over there. Well, I can assure you that when it finally comes out that a man or woman has fallen morally, it was not a sudden, instant event. But before that event, there were multiple pride-filled steps that that person had taken to satisfy their own lustful hearts. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, speaking of the, the danger and the severity of pride, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. If we simply read those together, we would think, well, maybe pride shouldn't be there. Maybe pride is tucked in among these really serious things. I mean, sexual immorality, murder, you're putting pride up there with that? I didn't say it. Jesus said it. It is a serious sin. That's why James says in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. He is against the one who is prideful. But the one who humbles himself receives more and more of God's grace. Isaiah chapter 14 shows us that pride is exactly the reason the devil became the devil. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 13, the writer says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, speaking of Satan, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. And it was at that that God expelled Satan from heaven. He went from that lofty position of an angel there leading the worshiper on the throne of God to the devil that you and I know so well. The devil that came and tempted Adam and Eve in the garden that had... They, gave into that temptation. And we are where we are today because we were plunged into a world of sin, all because of pride in one angel. John Stott says this, Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. When you stop and think about it, you think everything's rooted in pride, regardless of what it is whether it is sexual immorality or murder or whatever it may be, it all comes back to, I want to do what I want to do because I'm entitled to do whatever I want to do. It's all pride. Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart. 
and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. I start off that way because I want you to see that humility and pride is not an issue to be laughed at. There are times when we are humbled, like when water goes down your waders or homeless men insult the color of your teeth. But the reality is pride is disrupting the peace that we have with God on so many occasions. It is keeping us from coming to God and following Him. It is keeping us from what God has for us. It is keeping us from loving our brother, sister, or neighbor as ourselves. Pride is destroying us unless we simply laugh at it. I want us to look at our text this morning. Begin reading with me. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. The Bible says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered, mark that word, delivered, into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I want to stop right there and then we're going to pick up. We'll read the next section when we get to the next point. First thing I want you to see that pride does. The disciples here are obviously still filled with pride. Pride, more than anything else, causes you to reject God's plan because you are afraid of what it might cost. We see this in verse 32. They did not understand what Jesus was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has told them that he is going to die. That he is not only going to die, but he is going to be killed. He also, this is the second time that he's told them that after three days, he will rise from the dead. This time, he adds a little word in there, and he tells them the Son of Man will be delivered. Delivered. It's the word commonly used to talk of handing a criminal over. And in their minds, all they can think about is, this is the Messiah according to our own making. We, we're following a political Messiah, a military Messiah. He is going to come and liberate us from Roman tyranny, and we will be Israel again. And when Jesus says to them, the Son of Man will be delivered and killed, again, that's all they hear. And all they can think of is, no, 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 this, this can't happen. This does not fit my plan. They're silent. They just keep quiet. I wonder if they kept quiet because they remember that the last time Jesus had told them that the Son of Man must be killed and after three days rise again, Peter rebuked Jesus. You remember that? And Peter said to him, No, Jesus, you've got it all wrong. And Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And I wonder if maybe part of the reason the disciples here keep quiet is because they, <laughs> I'm not going to be Peter. I'm not taking a chance on putting my neck out there and being called Satan. And maybe there was a little bit of that, but I, I think the text shows us that there is more than that. It's more than a fear of being rebuked by Jesus. It's a fear of the unknown. 
The text specifically says in verse 32, they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. I think what it means is it didn't jive with what they had in mind and they didn't want to ask any questions because they were afraid he might tell them even more that didn't jive with their plans. There are so many of us that are just like these disciples, that we're afraid to open ourselves up and say, God, what do you have for me? What is, what is your plan? What are you calling me to? God, what would you have me to do? It's the, it's the very reason why at the end of our services we take just a few seconds together and we say, think about what this would require of you. Some of you can't stand that time. You, you fidget. You move around. You, you can't take it because you're afraid that God might actually show you something. I wish that I could tell you that, oh, the disciples had nothing to worry about. I mean, they didn't have to worry about losing their plan because Jesus was going to do it their way and they were going to get the benefit of what He came to do. But I can't tell you that. Because the reality is they never got their political Messiah. They never got their military Messiah. And I think it all came crashing down on them when they stood around that cross. When they watched from a distance. When they, when they looked in, in His trial. When they denied Him. When they fled. I think it all hit them that He's not what we wanted Him to be. I wish I could tell you that they got the best of both worlds. But... Sadly, no. And the reality is, here's the lesson that I want you to see today, is I can't promise you that in coming to Jesus, that He will fulfill all of your dreams. That He will give you everything you want. That life will just be happy. I can't tell you, I can't promise you that you will wake up in the morning and there will be a bluebird instead of your alarm clock. Which, by the way, would be annoying to me, you know. Poor bluebird, right? I mean, I'd probably take care of the bluebird. But I can't tell you that. I, I can't tell you that things are going to go according to your plans. What I can tell you is that He can be trusted. That He is good. And what they don't even realize they're doing is they're showing why He has to die. They don't understand. It's not according to our plans. Jesus, why? We're not going to rebuke you again, but Jesus, we'll just shut up because we're hoping you'll change your mind and do it our way. The very reason that Jesus had to come and had to be delivered and had to die was because their hearts were sick with sin. And their hearts were held captive by sin and self and wanting it their way. And if they were ever going to be liberated from that, Jesus had to die. They desperately needed a Savior. Well, what about you? Is God calling you to Him? But you're too afraid to come to Him. Is He drawing you to Himself, calling you away from your sin and your life and saying, turn away from it and trust in Me And I will save you. But you're too afraid of what that might mean. I can remember talking with multiple people. One particular teenager in in particular. 
The teenager was broken. He was, he was bawling when he talked to me. And this was a cool kid. This was an athlete. And nobody was supposed to see him cry. But he sat with me broken. And he knew he needed to be saved. He knew he needed the gospel. And I explained the gospel to him. And his words were, but I can't do that. And I said, why? Why can't you do that? Because I don't want to have to give up my party life. And this guy was ready to go into eternity, into hell, so that he could keep drinking and having a good time. What about you? Are you being called by God to himself? Are you being drawn? Are you hearing the gospel invitation, but you're so afraid of what it might cost you? Let me tell you, let me tell you, if you are here as an unbeliever, humble yourself. Turn away from your sin. Trust in Christ. You will never be disappointed. You will never be disappointed. You may think there's no way I could find satisfaction in that. But the ironic thing is, the powerful thing is that when you do, when you turn away from yourself and you trust in Christ alone, you find that He is the greatest joy that you ever could find in your life. And the stuff that you sought after before that seems like garbage. It seems like air. Maybe it's not just the unbelievers here that need to humble themselves and trust Christ. Maybe you as a believer are here today and you sense God calling you to something in particular. He's calling you to a particular work or to a particular person. You may be going through a particularly hard situation and He's calling you to trust Him through the middle of it. And I would say to you, don't harden your hearts either. Don't say what reveals you to not be a Christian and say, well, you know, I have my fire insurance. I've, I've prayed that prayer. I've been through the baptismal waters. It really doesn't matter what I do from this point forward, so I'm just going to say no to God here. If that's your attitude, you, you reveal that your heart has never been changed and possessed by Him. Humble yourself and forsake your pride and trust Christ. Let seeing the foolishness of the disciples fear from this side of the cross remind you that He is God and He is all-powerful and He is all-wise and He loves you more than you even love yourself. And you can trust Him. Secondly, pride not only causes you to reject God's plan because you're afraid of what it might cost, but secondly, pride causes you to think more highly of yourself than you should. Look at the text, verses 33 and 34. 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They had argued on the way about who was the greatest. How silly! We, we look at that and we think, how silly this really is. These grown men having this argument on the way. Well, no, I'm clearly better than you are. I will be better in the kingdom than you are. And here are the reasons why. And maybe, maybe James and John had spoken and said, Guys, we're clearly better than you guys because you were left in the valley. We were taken to the mountain. And Peter pipes in and like Peter always does, says, No, guys, no. I'm the oldest. I'm the leader. I was part of that three also. I'm the greatest. We think, how silly. 
How silly for these grown men to do such a thing. We would never do such a thing, would we? At least not out loud. We would look at one another and make judgments. Not with our words necessarily, at least not to that person. But we would at least think it. And we might even say it out loud to someone that we're close to, that we feel we can particularly trust. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. I remember being a teenager and a long, long time ago and, and uh, walking the streets of downtown Gatlinburg. I grew up in Sevierville right outside of Gatlinburg. We went to Gatlinburg a lot of times. And I had two or three good friends from church. And uh, the, us guys we were walking down the street in Gatlinburg, and, and um, four of us. And one particular guy that was with us, his name was Wade Coakley. And you just had to know Wade. Wade was the goofiest guy you would ever meet in your life. But he thought he was God's gift to everybody. I mean, you, you, you just wanted to say, Wade, you know, go take a shower. You know, you, you, you stink, Wade. You know, Wade, don't say that. You know, he was just one of those guys that was just always embarrassing you. And I remember walking down the streets of Gatlinburg, and this car goes by full of these girls. And we were all right around probably 16 years old. And this car goes by, and the girls go, woo Wade, immediately, without missing a beat, says... They were yelling at me. (laughs) When we said, sure, Wade, yeah, they were, you know, and we let him think so. And we think, how silly, though, how silly that was. How silly it was for teenagers to do that, but how much more silly it would be for grown men to argue about who was the greatest. But the reality is it's more than silly. It's sad. If it were just a group of men all on the same level arguing about who was the greatest, it would simply be silly. But taking stock of who they're walking with makes it sad. He's just told them that he will be killed and be raised from the dead. And they're arguing about which one of them will have the better seat in heaven, in the kingdom, in their mind. These men, having been arguing, they've been arguing in the light of who they're walking with. This is like bragging about being the smartest one on the short bus. When you're standing with the one who has created the heavens and the earth and holds it all together. This is ridiculous. They need to see what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon the throne. And these angels were flying back and forth with six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And they were doing the bidding of him. Whatever he said, they went and did. And they were constantly crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah doesn't say, wow, I can't wait to get there to where they can wait on me as well. Instead, he he bows and hits his face and he says, woe is me. What these disciples needed to do was stop thinking so much of themselves and take note of who they were with. They were with the one who the angels have sang to and about throughout all of eternity. They are with the one who spoke and the universe came to be. They were 
with the one who walked on the water and who calmed the storm, who caused the dead to be raised and caused the blind to see. They were with him and they're arguing about who among them is the greatest. It is sad. But how do we need the same perspective? If we would get the same perspective, the the perspective that Isaiah had, then we would also say with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That would be our only claim. It would be our only boast. We would echo what John the Baptist said multiple times. He must increase. I must decrease. We would again say with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, our verse that we're memorizing together, when he was dealing with this thorn in the flesh that was given to him to keep him from boasting, we would also say, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, we have it all backwards. We've come to the place where we think that we are entitled, that God owes us something. We've listened to the preachers on TV. And we've bought into the lie that God owes it to us. So all I've got to do is say it. If I speak it with enough faith, then God's obligated and He has to do it. It's a lie out of the pit of hell. God owes you nothing. Everything that you get this side of hell is grace. It's all grace. And that's when we get that perspective and when we live in that position, when we endure persecutions and hardships and calamities and insults, then we can say with Paul, I'll boast in my weaknesses because when I'm in the middle of those, I am strong because it is not this inner strength within me that is so impressive, that is willing myself up to face these things. But no, it is the strength of the one who holds the worlds together. It is the same strength that raised Christ from the dead that now lives in me. And when I'm weak, then I'm strong in Him alone. Pride causes us to reject God's plan because we're afraid of what it might cost us. Pride causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Third, pride causes us to reject Christ by putting ourselves before others. 35 through 37, he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The expression there means, You've not only received me, but you also have received the one who sent me. Pride causes us, though, to reject Christ by putting ourselves before others. This is contrary to the world's wisdom. When Jesus says here, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is in the face of everything the world says. The world's wisdom says, if anyone would be first, he must forget about everybody else. 
fight and scratch and claw his way over anybody and everybody that might get in his way. Don't think of others. If it's going to be, it's up to you. You take care of you because nobody else will. And it's antithetical to what Jesus is saying here. It's certainly contrary to their rank-dominated class society. In their society that day, they were constantly concerned with what rank a person held in society. Where do they fit in Israel? Where do they fit in the Jerusalem society? Where do they fit? And Jesus, to give them a picture of what he's trying to say, the one that would be first must be last and servant of all, to give them a picture, he takes a child. And he takes this child and he sets the child right in the middle of them. And children in that day were not spoiled, little entitled kids that they are today. Moms, if your kids forgot today was Mother's Day, that may be how you feel about them right now. The kids in that day were not the, the kids today that get a trophy just for showing up. No, children then were helpless. They were dependent. They were raised oftentimes not by the parents, but by servants. The parents oftentimes wouldn't demean themselves to actually raise the child. In some ways, children in those days were viewed as lower than slaves. In fact, the, the same word here where he says he took a child, the same word for child is also translated to mean slave. They were viewed, really, in the scheme of things, on the same level. Some even viewed children as lower than slaves. So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving them this picture. He is not sitting the child in the middle of them, only to hear them collectively say, Aw, look at him. They wouldn't have done that. Instead, they would have gasped. They would have recoiled from Jesus and said, What are you doing with the child? They may not have said it out loud, but that's what they would have been thinking. And the way the text reads, it's almost as if Jesus brings the child. We don't know whose child it is. Sits the child in the midst of them and then just steps back for a few seconds. Just to see what they would do. And he's just said, the one who's going to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And I think what happened is he put the child in the middle of them and they just sat there and looked at each other and said, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm not touching the child. What are we supposed to do with the kid? It's the same picture he was giving them later on when he washed their feet. When they wouldn't humble themselves to wash one another's feet and he girded himself with a towel and washed their feet. It's, it's that picture. And then after a few minutes of him letting the child stand awkwardly in the middle of the room, Jesus steps up and he takes the child and he pulls the child to himself and he hugs the child and he says, if anyone would receive even one of these, even a little child, in my name. This is what it means to be first in the kingdom of God. He did this to illustrate what James is saying. My brothers, show no partiality, for you hold the faith, as you hold the, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made them 
distinct among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? What Jesus is showing them by putting this child, this worthless one, this one that nobody would have reached out and touched, putting Him in the middle of them and then reaching out and taking Him to Himself. He is showing them that the Father is also taking those who are poor and helpless and needy and desperate and unwanted. And He is taking those and He's making them heirs of the kingdom. He's making them rich with the riches of Christ. He wants them to see this and desperately get this. It's what Philippians talks about when Philippians in chapter 2 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is the attitude that we are to have. The person who receives this child, Jesus wants them to say. The person who does not put themselves before others, but reaches out to even those who are desperate and needy and takes them and serves them and becomes last of all. Jesus is saying, by doing that, you are showing that you have not only received, but you have been received by God through Christ. Pride causes us to reject God's plan because we're afraid that it might cost us too much. And pride causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Pride here causes us to reject Christ by putting ourselves before others. And lastly, in verses 38 through 40, pride causes you to isolate yourself from partners. Look at verses 38 through 40. John said to him, Teacher, we we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's as if John here is convicted. It's as if he has got the illustration. He has seen what Jesus did with the child and taking and accepting. It's it's as if he's convicted here and he says, Jesus, we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. They tried to stop this man from doing the work of God because he wasn't one of them. And first of all, this is extremely brash because it was just a little while before this that they had failed at the very thing they were trying to stop this man from doing. They were unable to cast the demons out. And now they're trying to stop this one because he's not a member of the twelve. But also, this man apparently was one of them. He apparently was a believer because he was able to cast the demons out. He was able to do this. Somewhere along the way, he had heard of Christ. He had met Christ. He had been forgiven of his sins by Christ. The disciples' selfish pride caused them to see themselves as an elite group, as the only ones that were authorized to do such things. Are we that different? We are too often put off by other churches or other denominations. We're too often skeptical. I mean, I 
I somewhat, I don't excuse it, but I somewhat get the whole denomination thing because we do things differently from one another. And that's, that's why we have denominations. We believe in baptism by immersion because we believe it's a picture of what happened with Christ, that He was, he was crucified, He was buried, and then He was raised again. But there are other denominations that do it differently. And I, I somewhat get that, that we're not maybe as comfortable with each other as maybe we could be, but it's really out of ignorance. But let's all be honest in this room. There's a lot of times when we look at even churches within our own denomination, and we are more than skeptical of them, secretly we kind of want them to do a little less than we do. We, we want them to have less success than we have. We, we want to be. And we, we almost view ourselves as, well, God's doing a special work here. And the reality is, we're all on the same team. I believe we're threatened. We've created our own models of success. Success looks like bodies in the seats and money in the plates, baptisms. The reality is we can draw a crowd. We can manipulate you into giving. We can manipulate you through some water. But only God can save your soul. Only God can turn you from being a hater of Him to a lover. We are oftentimes too busy building our own kingdoms instead of His. But Jesus says to them, when John said, we tried to stop Him because He wasn't following us, He wasn't one of the twelve, Jesus says, do not stop Him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I mean, isn't that really the goal of what it's all about anyway? Seeing more and more people captured by His grace and captivated by His glory so that they no longer speak evil of Him, but His name and fame spread? Jesus says, for the one who's not against us is for us. We may not see eye to eye with every minute detail of doctrine with other denominations and churches, but wherever we agree on the essentials, we have a partner. It was St. Augustine that said, In essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, liberty. In all things, charity. There are some things that we must agree on. That Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sin of all who will believe. That He is the one. He's the very Son of God who died, was raised from the dead, that He was born of a virgin. There are some things that we have to agree on. But there are some other things that we can disagree on and still serve to build God's kingdom together. And that's what Jesus is saying to them here. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose His reward. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is it's not up to you to determine who gets to work for me and who doesn't. God will determine that. God will see what's done and God will reward accordingly. 
from Jonathan Edwards. I'll close with this quote that I started with. Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. I hope that today you've seen in this text that pride will cause us to reject God's plan because we're afraid of what it might cost us. It will cause us to think more highly of ourselves. It will cause us to put ourselves before others. It will cause us to even isolate us ourselves from partners in Christ. And to that, I would simply say, and I pray that it's the prayer of your heart as well, God, deliver us from pride. God, humble us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there's not any one of us in this room that is qualified to speak about humility. All of what we know about humility, we see in you. In Philippians 2, Jesus writes about how you did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but instead that you laid it aside. You never stopped being God, but that you added to your Godhood flesh, that you were born, that you grew up and you lived a life just like the lives that we live. But you did it with one distinct difference you never sinned, you never failed, you subjected yourself, you humiliated yourself, you condescended to us, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, the only example we know of humility is your example. God, we can't even begin to follow it without your strength, without your grace. God, all through this room, and I start with nobody besides myself. God, I pray, God, that you would give me grace to deliver me from the pride in my life. That you would deliver us from pride. That you would make us humble. That we would boast in our weaknesses. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. God, that our only boast would be the gospel. Lord, for the person who's here today, that has never turned from their sin and trusted Christ alone to save them. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself today, that you would open their hearts, that they would be able to understand that it would make sense, that it would come alive to them. And God, that they would turn from their sins and trust you and you alone. God, for those of us who are here and we have been born again, God, I pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ. Make us humble like he is. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want you to take just a few minutes. We want you to think about what you've heard today. We want you to think about the text. We want you to talk to the Father and say, God, what is it that you require of me? What does this text say to me that I now need to obey. And then after just a few
few seconds of that, then Ethan will get back up and he'll lead you, instruct you to sing with him. I'll come back up to the front. If today you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, then today I'll be here to receive you. I'd love to talk with you through that. You don't come to me, you come to him, but I can help you. Today, if you're here and you're struggling in a particular area, it may be pride, it may be something else, and you just need someone to pray with, I'll be glad to pray with you. Again, you have no need to really come to me. I'm not your priest. We have one mediator, it's Christ alone. But if you'd like to pray with me, I'd be glad to pray with you. Maybe you just want to come and get all along these steps and pray by yourself. That's fine too. Maybe you want to bring somebody with you. Maybe this is the church that God's leading you to join, to lock arms with. We can talk about that as well. Whatever it is, God leads you to. Don't harden your hearts. But be obedient today. Ethan, you lead us.